0: All right, welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Chasers podcast. Today, we've got a very special guest in the world of finance. You've probably read his articles or seen him break down the world of stocks on YouTube. He's not just a financial educator, but also an author who's written a whopping 3,000 articles for The Motley Fool. And if you've ever wondered, why does the stock market go up? Well, he literally wrote the book on it. Straight from New England, the man on a mission to demystify finance, Brian Feraldi. Brian Welcome to the show, man. Um, I was reading the notes that you sent me over, and you mentioned learning the Dow Jones as a golf caddy. I would love to kick off the story there. Let's just see where it goes.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Tim. It is fun to be here. I think a lot of people have an experience similar to the one that I had uh, when I was a a, a kid. Um, I had run into or come into contact with the stock market on occasion uh, growing up, but I was never taught anything formally about it. I didn't understand how it worked, really what it was. I just knew of it as a random number generator. That was the boring part of the news. Uh, However, I vividly remember when I was a kid growing up, one of my first jobs was a caddy on a golf course, and I was caddying for this a wealthy group of individuals, and this was in the late 90s, so it was when the stock market was uh, reaching bubble of uh, uh, pit fever um, in the United States. And at the turn, so after the ninth hole, all the golfers went in uh, to get some, to go to the bathroom, to get some like a food, and they came uh, back out. And when they came out, one of the golfers was really excited, really in a good mood. And he said, you're not going to believe this, guys. Guess how much the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up? And the other golfers said, how much? And they said, 350 points. And All of the golfers had a smile on their face. They were were cheering. Clearly, they were happy about this news. I had absolutely no idea what the Dow Jones Industrial Average was, why it was up, or even why these guys were celebrating that. But it did put them in a good mood, and I thought that that meant good things for my future tip.
0: Absolutely. So it put them in a good mood, but you still didn't have a good understanding of what it was and what it went. So like, what led you into learning about the stock market? Was it the excitement that you saw in their eyes? Did you start asking them questions? Where did it go from there, Brian?
1: No, absolutely not. I didn't uh, start getting into investing or the stock market until well after I graduated from uh, school. So this was about six years before I picked up a book and started to, to read about it. Uh, the thing that kickstarted kick my love affair uh, with the stock market, which continues to this day, uh, is when I graduated college in 2004, um, we were taught almost nothing about stocks or investing uh, in school. And I say that as someone that graduated with a degree... In business, okay, we were still taught absolutely nothing about stocks or investing uh, in school. Uh, however, when I graduated, my dad uh, bought me a copy of a very popular book at the time uh, called "Rich Dad, uh, Poor Dad," uh, and that was the. And uh, when when he gave that to me, uh, for whatever reason, I just I was just. Instantly hooked uh, on the material. And that book opened up my eyes to concepts that I'd never heard before. Things like the rich think about money differently uh, than everybody else. Uh, What's the difference between an asset and a liability? How you can build wealth in one generation? Um, And uh, that book just kickstarted a love affair. With uh, personal finance and investing that continues to this day. Now, from there, I quickly read through many of the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books in series. And then I looked for other books. I discovered books by, by and about uh, Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, Benjamin Graham. I discovered The Motley Fools um, Investment Guide. And slowly but surely, I discovered over time that the stock market was the investment vehicle that best fit my personality and investing style. Um, And that's where I've put the vast majority of, my uh, self-education and personal capital sense.
0: Absolutely. So we're going to dive into your journey a little bit, but before the show, you mentioned that you'd like to talk about the history of the stock market a little bit, and I'm kind of a history buff, and I certainly don't know as much as you do. So let's get into that a little bit. What, what is the history of the stock market?
1: Yeah, well, first let's start with the question What is a stock? Because this is something that people talk about, but they never actually explain. Uh, What a stock is, is it's simply a record keeping tool for figuring out who owns how much of a corporation. That's it. Stocks are record keeping tools for figuring out who owns how much of a corporation. Tim, real simple example. Let's say me. And you, we start a donut shop together. We calculate that this donut shop is gonna cost $100,000 to get off the ground. That $100,000 will allow us to buy, uh, to lease a location, buy some donut making equipment, hire some people, buy some raw materials to get really up uh, and uh, running. Well, Tim, you are the moneybags of this operation. You're going to contribute $80,000 to this new enterprise. I am only going to contribute $20,000 to this enterprise. Well, how the heck can we figure out who owns how much of this business? Real simple answer to that equation, we would start this new company and we would sell shares in this company for simplicity for $1 a piece. You contribute your $80,000, you now own 80,000 shares that you purchased for a dollar. I contribute $20,000, I now own 20,000 shares that I bought for a dollar. And whenever we need to figure out, let's say that this business is successful. Over the course of the year, we make $100,000 in profit, and we decide to pay that $100,000 back to ourselves. How do we figure out who gets how much? Well, this, in case the math is extremely simple, of that 100K, you get 80%, because that's how much of the business you own. I get 20%. This is very simple math. You can imagine how complex it gets when you have not two shareholders, but you have thousands of shareholders and you have shareholders that didn't all invest at the exact same time. They invested at different times through that business's life cycle. How do you record keep who owns how much? The answer is stocks. That's why corporations are split up into stocks. It's simply a record-keeping tool for figuring out how much of the company's profits go to each individual shareholder.
0: Tremendous answer, man. Um, This is awesome. I would love to go to another fairly basic and rudimentary question, probably from your perspective, but you mentioned that Dow Jones to kick it off. Everybody has heard Dow Jones before. And as you mentioned before, like people get excited about it. um, But I don't really have a clear understanding of what it actually is. I know when it goes up, that's good. Um, But let's go from there.
1: Sure. So now we know what a stock is. Let's take it one step further and figure, ask a question. What is a stock? Market, okay. A stock market is very similar to a farmer's market. What is a farmer's market? Farmer's market is where where food producers go and food buyers go, and they exchange with each other, right? The food buyers give the food producers money, and they get the food and, and exchange. That is just that's called a market or or an exchange. A stock market is the exact same thing, but instead of fo- farmers uh, exchanging with consumers corporations and business owners are exchanging with investors. They're buying and selling individual uh, stock in those corporations with each other. So that's all a stock market is. Stock markets have actually existed for a couple of hundred years. Uh, In the United States, Stocks have been around uh, since essentially the dawn of the, of the country. In 1792 was the first time that investors got together in lower Manhattan on a street called Wall Street, and they started exchanging shares of corporations uh, with each other, and that continues to this day. Uh, however, uh, rewind the clock about 130 years. How did people get information about what prices stocks were trading at? The answer is newspapers. Newspapers were the way that people understood what what companies that were publicly traded were were trading at and how much their price moved in any single day. So if you were reading a newspaper, what you would get back then is just a table, top to bottom, of company name, company ticker, uh, price, and then how much it moved up and down uh, that day. And there was dozens, perhaps hundreds of stocks that were publicly traded at the time. Well, uh, uh, the head of what would become the Wall Street Journal, his, his name was Charles Dow. And he said, you know, there's no way for me to summarize what happened in the stock market for my readers. All that my readers get is a big table with numbers on it and random, and, ran, and random numbers. And there's no way for me to summarize what the overall mood or what overall happened in the market that day for my readers' way was. So he worked with a a business partner of his. His name was Edward Jones, and Edward Jones was a statistician. And the two of them just devised a really simple and elegant solution uh, to their problem. Uh, What they did was they took the 12 most popular and biggest industrial companies at the time, industrial companies, railroad, chemical manufacturers, those were the biggest companies uh, back in that day. They added up the share price of, the, of 12 of the biggest, most popular companies of the day. And then they divided the total by 12. Now, Tim, what's it called when you add up a whole bunch of numbers and then divide by that same number that are in there? Uh, the average. We call that averaging, right? So boom, mm-hmm. in uh, 1896, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was born, and suddenly, suddenly, Charles Dow had a number that he could share with his readers, and you could compare this number to the day before, to the week before, to the month before, to the year before, and you could give your readers an idea of what was happening in the stock market on that particular day, week, month, year, etc. Well, that number has been printed in the Wall Street Journal every single day since 1896, and over time, it became a shorthand for investors to figure out what was happening in the market on any given day. So that is how the Dow Jones Industrial Average came to be and why you're still hearing about it today.
0: So how do you analyze the data from the Dow Jones? And so essentially what it is, is it's taking the top companies and it's making an average of where they are. Like, how do you take that information and utilize it in your investing career?
1: Yeah. So what that is, is it's just the Dow Jones Industrial Average is what's known as an index. An index is just a sampling, a small sampling in the Dow Jones's case of a subset of companies. And those companies, when cobbled together, represent what's kind of happening to the average business in the stock market on any given day. In that case, those 12 companies were taken from businesses that traded on the New York uh, Stock Exchange. And uh, over time, different indexes have spawned. uh, Some of the more popular ones today are the three most popular indexes. They all essentially do the same thing as the Dow. They just do it slightly differently. Uh, Those indexes are the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the biggest, the oldest, the simplest. And then there's the S&P 500. That includes 500 companies, not just uh, 30 companies like the Dow does today. And then there's the NASDAQ Composite, which includes thousands of companies. In fact, every company that's traded on the NASDAQ uh, index. Those are simply shorthands that give investors a rough feel for what happened with the quote-unquote stock market over any given day, week, month, or or year. Uh, Personally, a lot of uh, news outlets and people look at them just to get an idea of whether their portfolio should be up or down on any given day or month or even year-to-date. You can say things like the S&P 500 is up 20% uh, year to date or, or something like that. Well, that can give you a barometer to figure out, well, is my portfolio as a whole up 20% year to date? Is it up more than 20% that I'm doing better than average? Is it, da- is it only up 10%? Am I doing worse than average? So it's a yardstick that you can measure your investments against.
0: Absolutely, that makes a ton of sense. So obviously, there are several different indexes. How do you utilize each one? Because obviously there would there wouldn't be more than one index if they didn't have different roles. So let's talk about the roles that each index um, provide.:
1: Yeah, there's actually uh, dozens, if not hundreds uh, of indexes. Uh, the United States does not have a monopoly on stock markets. There are literally stock markets all over the globe. There's the London Stock Exchange, there's a Shanghai Stock Exchange, the Hong Kong, uh, and basically every uh, continent on earth and many countries on earth, there are their own individual um, exchanges. However, the two biggest stock exchanges in the world are both located in the United States. Those are the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, or the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotations. That's a mouthful. That's why they just say uh, NASDAQ. Now, each index has its own nuance to it um, that some investors uh, look at. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average only tracks the price movement the price movement of 30 different companies uh, that trade on the New York Stock Ex- uh, Exchange. Um, but because it's the oldest and it was essentially the first, it's still widely quoted. Most, mute, most uh, fund managers that are out there do not track their performance against the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, they actually usually track their performance against against the S&P 500. The S&P 500 includes 500 companies. It has has a better uh, overall view of the stock market. So most people, myself included, don't really care what the Dow did. I I care much more about what the S&P 500 uh, did. Now, the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ is the newest of the the indexes. The NASDAQ is about uh, 52 years old um, at this point. Um, And the NASDAQ was the first electronic stock exchange. So rather than people having to exchange um, stocks with each other in person, the NASDAQ was launched in 1971 to give people a way to exchange with each other um, electronically. So the, the, the NASDAQ is purely um, on, on computers. Well, being on a computer system is very attractive to certain types of companies, namely tech companies, right? That's a very cool thing to be a part of. And that's why, if you look back historically, um, some of the biggest companies that trade in the NASDAQ are companies like Microsoft, Adobe, uh, uh, or Oracle, um, Autodesk, companies that had big presences uh, in the tech uh, sector. So that continues to this day. A lot of tech-focused companies tend to list their stocks on the NASDAQ. So because of that, the NASDAQ composite tends to be the higher growth, uh, more volatile, more um, volatile, uh, index uh, of of the three. But which one you compare yourself to really depends on what type of investor uh, you are. Most fund managers compare themselves to the S&P 500, and that's what I do uh, too. Um, But you can also compare yourself to the NASDAQ uh, if that's more appropriate.
0: Absolutely. So I know you have an email course. I would love to give you a chance to talk about that. And then let's talk about um, how somebody would start investing, somebody that's um, relatively new on their journey. Our audience is mostly entrepreneurs. Uh, many of them are real estate agents and real estate investors. So they're probably not super well-versed in stocks. So I'd love to give um, that, that runway for them.
1: Sure. So. Uh, uh- when you are, if you are a real estate focused person, um, you need to know how to value real estate before you make a, a purchase of it, right? You have to have a feel for is this property. Fairly valued, overvalued, undervalued, etc. The exact same principle applies to the stock market um, a, as a whole. Uh, however, it's much more tricky to figure out how to value uh, individual companies than it is to value um, uh, real estate. With real estate, you have one entity you can calculate in pretty hard terms how much rent it's going to um, uh, cost or what the replacement cost is, whatever f- uh, form you use. With the stock market, it's more complex than that because it's, there's, it's very common uh, for companies, especially high growth, newer companies to lose money on purpose. And that is actually a, um, feature of a lot of companies that are growing very, very quickly. Uh, So because of that, there's a whole lot of nuance that goes into valuing uh, stocks when compared to to real estate. So if people are interested in learning more about that, I do have a uh, free uh, email-based course. Uh, It's called valuation.school. If you type it into your browser, valuation.school, I just ask you to add your email address. And I essentially send you seven emails over a week period that kind of shows you uh, how to value, how stocks are valued at different, phases of the business
0: growth cycle. Okay. So somebody just getting started with stocks, what would be a good action plan for them? Do you recommend they start investing in um, something a little bit more stable or or would you recommend like, yeah, I mean, I just, let's just jump into that. How would you recommend somebody get started?
1: Yep. So to me, if you're going to start investing in any asset class, I don't care what asset class it is. uh, The first step is always the same. Step one, educate yourself you have to know what you are investing in before you put money into it, right? If somebody was a new real estate investor, would you say buy an industrial property, buy a single family home, buy a multifamily? You say, no, educate yourself before you step into it. I would say the exact same thing uh, with the stock market. Uh, Thankfully, it's never, ever been easier to educate yourself about how, what you should do with the market. So I would say, choose the education medium that you are most familiar and most comfortable with. Uh, some people love reading books. Uh, the investment world is filled with dozens of high quality books that can get you a wonderful uh, education about the stock market. If you're not a reader, there are lots of podcasts uh, out there that you can listen to that can get you started uh, reading. There are a lot lots of great YouTube channels. There are lots of great people on Twitter. There's even great people on TikTok that can help you uh, to get started with uh, investing. So it doesn't really matter today what medium you start with, uh, so long as you find the right people uh, to follow and engage with. So that would be my my first suggestion. Uh, Find the education platform that most uh, conforms with your education listening style and start by educating yourself.
0: When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. And the results prove this. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secret that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is why we have opened up a few one-on-one coaching slots with Freedom Chasers Coaching, where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are and where you want to go and most importantly, how you want to get there, where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are, where you want to go, and how you want to get there. The benefit of working with Matt and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 successful people Every single week, we have accumulated hundreds of seven figure strategies and gotten the inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We are able to work with you to pick the strategy that will fit the best and then help you create the custom plan and steps to take you quickly into financial freedom. The fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Absolutely. I love what you just touched upon there. Make sure you're learning from the right people. I think the stock market niche in particular has a lot of the wrong people that you could be learning from. So what are the red flags you could be looking out for if somebody's looking to learn something about the stock market?
1: Yep. So those to me are, are, are easy. Um, so the stock market naturally attracts a lot. When, when I first started investing, I thought the stock market was a giant gambling machine. I thought the idea of the stock market was to buy a stock one day for a dollar fifty and sell it that next day, that next week, that next month for two dollars. I thought that's how the stock market uh, worked. And if you go and try and educate yourself on the stock market, you're going to find lots of people that try and tell you how to day trade uh, the, the market, how to use sophisticated things like options or leverage uh, to trade the market. If you find people that are doing that. Your first thought should be run away. Anybody that is telling you that you can make money quickly and easily in the stock market is going to make money off of selling you something. They're not gonna get they're not gonna give you a system for consistently making money in the stock market in the short term. The stock market only works when you measure it over the appropriate time period. And the appropriate time period to measure your results in the stock market is five years minimum, preferably 10 years or, or more. So anybody that is trying to tell you how to make stocks uh, money in the stock market in any, in any less time period than five years, your first thought should be runaway.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, a lot of people getting into stocks do kind of look at it as a gambling thing or a way to make money quickly, which is unfortunately, that's just how people look at it. Um, it when you're looking at the stock market, what is the difference between investing and gambling?
1: Well, it depends on what you are going for, because optically, both both actions look the same when you're zo- zo- zooming out. Uh, people that are gambling or speculating the stock market, they're trying to buy an asset for one price and sell it over a short period of time, days, weeks. Days, uh, weeks, or, or months, and flip it at a high uh, price. If you're investing in the stock market, you're also trying to do that same thing, but rather than doing it over a short time period, you're doing it over a multi-year uh, t- time period. That's really the difference. The difference between a speculator and an investor. A speculator is trying to time uh, the price uh, of an asset, and they're trying to buy it at one price and then flip it to somebody else over a short period of time at a, at a higher uh, price. I have nothing wrong. Uh, To me, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. I just don't know of any way to do that consistently, successfully. And I actually think that is a losing game to try and get into. Why do I say that? Because there are lots and lots of hedge funds out there who have access to faster computers, more data and better trading priority than you do. If you think that I'm going to open up a Robin Hood account and you're going to go and play against those people and win, that's like me saying, I'm going to go get a bunch of my buddies together and we're going to beat the New England Patriots at football. Good luck to you if you think that that is a game that you can, um, that you can uh, try and, and win. But the, the real difference is investors look at the underlying asset, they place a value on that asset and they hold it with the intention of that asset building value for them over a long period of time. A speculator simply looks at the price and tries to flip the price to somebody else and over a short period of time. That to me is the key difference between investing and and speculating.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, this kind of raises a question. I don't know how dated this is now, but why don't you explain, because you mentioned the hedge funds buying things out. Like what happened with GameStop and AMC? I think it was like a year ago or something like that. Could you explain that to the layman? Like, why did that happen the way it did?
1: yeah that was a pheno- that was a phenomenon that I had never ever seen uh, before uh, the The gist uh, of it is that gamestop and AMC were two um, broken down businesses that were severely down on their luck uh, when a bit when a stock is down on its luck, it tends to trade at a very low m- multiple which which you can imagine in real estate. Um, imagine that you bought a house and it was in a nice neighborhood to start with, and then over time. Uh, unemployment hit that neighborhood. It just became a really tough place to live. Uh, Good people uh, moved out, gangs moved in. What would happen to the value of that property? Uh, It would fall dramatically because you wouldn't want to live there. Think of that happening with GameStop uh, and AMC. Uh, However, um, because those two stocks, for whatever reason, caught fire within the Reddit uh, community, uh, thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of individual investors decided to gang up and buy shares in those properties, uh, in in those stocks at that time, which caused the price, uh, the demand for the stock to increase, which caused the price, Price to go up. Now, those stocks were being bet against heavily by hedge funds and and mutual funds. What that means is that they would profit if those stocks continued uh, to fall. The way that you do that, it's called short selling, and it works the reverse way that you buy. You actually borrow shares from someone you don't know, you sell those shares. And then to unwind that trade, you have to buy them back later. Now, if you buy them back later at a lower price than you sold them at, you pocket the difference. That's how short sellers uh, make money. However, if the price starts going up and going against you very, very rapidly, the way that you unwind that trade is you have to buy those shares on the open market. And if you're buying them higher than you sold them, you just lost money. Well, a whole bunch of people were betting against GameStop. And when Reddit crew came in and and caused the price to spike, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people had lost their shirt on the stock. And the only way that they could get out was by buying shares of GameStop, which put further upward pressure on the stock. And that caused what's called a short squeeze. And if you want to see what a short squeeze looks like, just pull up a long-term chart of GameStop stock. That is probably the most most, um, amazing short squeeze I've ever seen.
0: Absolutely. So how do you deal with the emotional journey of the stock market? Obviously, you're a strong proponent of, of investing long term, but if you're investing long term, you're going to see ups and downs. So how do you um, stay with the flow and just don't sell when everybody else is? Because that seems to be the number one mistake people are making.
1: Uh, I would say the exact same way that real estate investors would uh, would would keep with this. The big difference between real estate and the stock market is that stock prices are quoted every second of the business day, and real estate prices are quoted very infrequently. But if let's say I was a multifamily, a multifamily, multi tenant uh, investors, uh, how would I go about picking good investment? Well, I would check what is the property location? Is it a high quality building? Does it need maintenance? What is the rental history? How much rental income am I going to get? And I, if I subtract out my expenses uh, from there, uh, what is going to be my net profit? What can I be, What's a reasonable, uh, how much can I raise rates over time? And what's a reasonable return that I could get on my investment? Those are the things that smart re- real estate investors focus on. And the difference is they're not looking at the Zillow price of their property uh, 25 times a a day, every every day, right? The actual price of their property is something they think about, but it doesn't have the vast majority of their attention. They're focused on operating the the real estate uh, profitably. That's the exact same mindset that you have to take if you're investing uh, in stocks on, on the public markets. You have to go in focused on what is the business doing? Where, is, is revenue going up? Is profits going up? Are they launching new products, new services? Are they opening up new markets? Are they buying up uh, competitors? Are they winning in the marketplace, um, that's what you need to focus on. If you're an individual investor, you don't focus on what's the price of this business today. How about now? How about now? How about now? Which is the thing that grabs so many people's attention because that that is a moving target that moves up and down every single day. So if you're going to be if you're going to be investing in the stock market, you have to approach it from the exact same mindset that a smart real estate investor uh, is. You focus on the underlying asset not the price, the market price of the asset.
0: Okay, that makes a ton of sense. Like, How do you look and try to identify then um, companies that are undervalued or at least perceived undervalued in the market as of today? What kind of numbers and metrics are you looking at?
1: So that totally depends on the stage that the business is in, in the business uh, growth cycle. If people follow me on Twitter, I post this chart fairly regularly of the phases of a business's life that it goes through Um, and what type of valuation metric you should look at totally depends on what type of investor you are and just as importantly, what stage of the business growth cycle you are looking at. Again, to take it to a real estate developer's mindset. Would you, if you were going to be investing in land, right, land that would be future built out for properties, would you judge that real estate on a price to f- funds from operation uh, perspective? No, that would be stupid. There is no funds from operation. There is no real estate income. You have to judge that based on the value uh, uh, of the land. The same thing applies to the stock market. If you're going to be investing in companies that have very little revenue, are losing uh, money, well, then you shouldn't use tools like discounted cash flow models or even price to earnings ratios. Those valuation metrics don't apply uh, yet. Um, So it depends on which stage you are looking at. If you're the type of investor that likes to invest in early stage businesses that have lots of potential, I would suggest using something called total addressable market analysis, which is when you do some squishy back of the envelope math about if this company works out, how much revenue and profits could it generate in five to 10 years? And then you try and buy those profits um, at a discount. It's really squishy. You're betting on a whole bunch of things going li- going right, but that's the only tool that's really available. Uh, two at the time. Now, if you're going to be investing in big, boring, stable, reliable companies like um, Walmart or uh, Target or um, um, a utility, uh, those companies are big, profitable, and fairly predictable. So for companies like that, you can use tools such as a discounted cash flow analysis model to to do so. But that's because those companies have reached maturity. They're in in the mature stage of their business growth cycle. So what valuation tool you look at, Totally depends on the phase of the business.
0: Okay, and then let's, let's do a two-fold question here. Um, number one, what are the biggest mistakes that you've made in the stock market? And then number two, what are the biggest mistakes that your typical investor is making currently?
1: Yeah. So I've made. I've been investing for almost 20 years now. It's been 19 years for me. And during that time, I've made just about every mistake that you can possibly uh, make uh, oh, 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 over time. Um, I have several threads on this on Twitter where I talk about those mistakes openly uh, and, and honestly. But I will tell you the most expensive mistake I've ever made from a net worth perspective had nothing to do with analyzing a business wrong or getting the valuation wrong or anything like that, the most expensive make that any investor can make is finding a great investment, buying that great investment, and then selling that great investment way too early. Uh, I myself have done that many, many times. Uh, more, More recently in 2011, uh, I sold Microsoft's uh, stock. I thought it was undervalued. I thought it was a good business. Uh, I sold it for about twenty four dollars per share about to twelve years ago. Microsoft is currently trading at three hundred and twenty nine dollars uh, per share. I sold it at twenty four, currently trading at three hundred and twenty nine. So I gave up a fifteen x return on Microsoft, not exactly a hidden business uh, out there, simply because I sold it way too early. If you ask any investor that's been going for a long period of time, I guarantee you they have a very similar uh, story. I know know investors that sold the Netflix in 2005 and 2006. That was literally a five plus million dollar mistake. Million dollar mistake. So that, that to me is the number one, that's the worst mistake that any investor uh, can make in the market. They buy something great and they don't hold on long enough for it to come, compound on there. So, and, and that single mistake that I've made again and again and again, uh, the lost wealth from, the, from doing that uh, is, is far greater than every other stock that I've ever bought that then subsequently mm-hmm. went down. And that's because of the asymmetric math of investing in stocks. The most you can lose without leverage is 100%. But the most you can Mm. miss out on if if you sell that stock early is literally tens of thousands of percents of upside.
0: Well, how do you define when to sell then? Because with this logic, it seems like it makes sense to hold on to everything forever. So how do you know when is the right time to sell something if it ever is?
1: yep there's lots of reasons to 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 sell something um, and the, the number one reason to to sell an investment is is simple. you need the money in your personal life uh, for for some reason that's the reason people invest in the first place. right? The reason we set aside money in the markets and money money to grow is because down the road, we hope to use that money to fund a better life for ourselves, to pay for college, to pay for a house, to pay for a car, to pay for a retirement, what, whatever it is. That to me is the number one reason, the best reason that you should sell something because you want to use the proceeds from that investments uh, to pay for uh, your, your lifestyle. Uh, beyond that, the number one reason that you should sell beyond that uh, is you were wrong about that company. Uh, If I bought Microsoft because I said, great brand, growing franchise, uh, increasingly relevant, and I think this company is going to grow for 10 plus years. Well, if five years later, that company is smaller, if the revenue is shrinking, if it's becoming increasingly irrelevant, you were wrong. Your original thesis for owning that stock was wrong. And there's no shame in selling that company at a loss, learning a lesson, and deploying that capital into a better um, idea. If you pick stocks, just like if you pick real estate, you're going to be wrong a whole bunch, but you only need to occasionally be super right about investment to do extremely well.
0: Okay. So how do you define then if a stock is overvalued? I think the GameStop example is a great extreme example, but, but that's a very, very rare occasion, right? That the stock squeeze almost never happens. What is a way to identify a more normal company, not in extreme circumstances that is also overvalued?
1: Again, this totally depends on the stage of the business growth cycle that a company um, that a company is in. Uh, broadly speaking, take a big mature company that everyone knows, like Google, Apple. Facebook, um, Meta, now called, um, etc. cetera. Uh, those companies are optimized largely for profits. So they are generating meaningful profits um, at this time. So you can use very simple valuation tools on them, such as the price to earnings ratio or the price to free cash flow uh, ratio, or if you want to get bonus points, enterprise value to free cash flow uh, ratio. And if you look at their historic ranges over the last couple of years, you will see a historic high. For those companies and a historic low uh, for those companies. And one way to tell if that company is undervalued or overvalued is to simply compare that company's current valuation to its recent uh, history. Now, there's n- plenty of nuance beyond that. Uh, companies aren't static. Companies are constantly changing. Uh, is, is, is the business stronger today? Does it have more users today? Is it generating more profits uh, today? Uh, if so, you could justify it trading at a higher valuation than it has historically. And the inverse is is also uh, true. It wasn't all that long ago that a lot of investors were really worried that TikTok was going to come in and just decimate Facebook, just absolutely decimate Facebook's business. And if you look back just a, a few months ago, uh, Facebook was trading at essentially an all-time low of valuation, which by the way, was a fantastic time to put money uh, into into the business. But let me ask you this question today. Is, is ChatGPT a major threat to Google?
0: Yeah, without question.
1: Okay. You think the answer to that question uh, is yes. I would say it, it could be a threat, but the jury is still out it will actually take revenue away from, from Google. So if you think that ChatGPT is an existential threat to Google's business, uh, perhaps you would say, well, Google's valuation today should be lower. Than it has been historically because the company has never faced bigger challenges than it faces uh, today. Uh, so that's one way of figuring out the valuation uh, uh, of a company. That's simple multiple uh, analysis. Another way would be to do, would do what's called the reverse discounted cash flow analysis, it's a little technical. Well, what that does is it takes the, val- the price, the market price of Google stock today, and it backs into that, uh, that number. How fast does Google have to grow its profits from here to justify today's valuation? Let's pretend for, this isn't accurate, but let's pretend that number was 10%. Well, if you thought that Google, there's no way given ChatGPT that Google's going to grow its profits at 10% or more, Google's a sell. Conversely, if you thought, well, I think Google's going to grow its profits 20% over the next five years and, and the market's only pricing in ten percent, well then Google could be a screaming buy. So there's lots of different ways to value a business. It totally depends again on which phase of the business growth cycle a company is in.
0: All right. I love how mathematical that is. So it's very analytical. It makes a lot of sense. I'd like to talk about Brian Feraldini just a little bit before we move on, man. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning that you got into stocks and then you found Montley Fool and then Obviously, you are an avid writer for them. So how did that journey look like? How did you end up working for them? Or,
1: yeah. G- Great question. Uh, so when I graduated college for the first 10 years of my career, uh, I worked for a medical device company. I was doing sales and, and marketing uh, for them. Now, one huge benefit of being in sales and doing what I did was I was in my car driving around for about 35 hours per week for this company. I was doing about 40 or 50,000 miles per year uh, in, my, in my car. Um, because I was so interested in money and investing at the time, I used a huge amount of that time uh, to listen to audiobooks or listening to podcasts or listening to earnings calls about companies that I was investing in. And I essentially gave myself an MBA level degree in investing while sitting driving around uh, in my car. Now with The Motley Fool in particular, one wonderful thing about that company is once you become a paying member, you get access to these premium discussion boards. And these discussion boards are filled with thousands of smart, educated investors who openly exchange information and ideas uh, with each other. And I had been an active member of that community for years. So I was free, freely posting my thoughts and ideas on The Motley Fool's discussion uh, boards and learning along the way. Well, The Motley Fool pays attention to the people that are most active and most engaged uh, on their community boards. And they have a history of hiring those people to be writers uh, for them. So after giving away free writing content on the monthly accession boards, uh, for years, I slowly wormed my way into getting uh, a job with them as a uh, freelance writer. And that's how it started. So it's not like one day I said, Hey, I, I want to try this writing thing out. And the next day they said, sure, you'll do it. It was a multi-year process of getting to know them and them getting to know me uh, before we had any, uh, formalized uh, in- agreement.
0: Okay, man. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Brian. Obviously, anybody listening to the show that's interested in getting into stocks, you could go to valuation.school and you could join that newsletter that he has. It's seven days. Go check it out. Brian, what other ways could the audience get in touch with you? Obviously, you're on Twitter, too. Could you plug that here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I am essentially. If you could name a platform that you like to be on, there's a good chance I have a presence on there. I would say that I am most active on Twitter, and that's just my name at uh, Brian Feraldi. I'm also on uh, LinkedIn, and if you're interested in learning more about how companies are valued, if you're on YouTube, uh, my channel is called Brian Feraldi, just my my name. And what we do is every uh, every week we take a look at companies that are reporting earnings, and we show you how we. Uh, me and my business partner, who's also named Brian, break down those companies' earnings and how give you an update. They look at their, their valuation. So if that thing, that kind of thing interests you, you can certainly find me on YouTube as well.
0: Absolutely. Tremendous, Brian. There you have it, everybody. You know where to reach out to him. Go join the, the newsletter and check that out and you can get started on your stock investing journey. Um, Brian Ferraldi, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is accomplished one action at a time. The wealthiest people in the world are the ones that think on the longest time horizon. So as Brian said, go start investing in the stock market, but think at a minimum of five years on your investment timeline. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.